Hi everyone, welcome to the Parma Podcast. Really great to be with you all again. Um, I'm James Prescott, your host, and it's really great to be here. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, a new guest today. We're going to talk about her book. Um, her name is Aaliyah Joy, and uh, she is an author and a, a writer, and uh, she's got a new book out called uh, Glorious Weakness, which is an incredible book, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, so welcome, Aaliyah. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell us a bit about um, like the book and tell us a bit about your story um, that you kind of that you share in the book. Yeah, so um, uh, the idea behind Glorious Weakness, um, discovering God in all we lack, is sort of this exploration of what it means to be poor in spirit um, and this idea of weakness being our greatest strength. I talk about in the book about it possibly being a spiritual gift. Um, coming to a point in my life where I was like, maybe this is what I bring to the church is weakness. Um, I was a missionary uh, kid and was diagnosed with leukemia, came back to the States um, and had dealt with sexual abuse um, when I was very, very little, hadn't told anybody. So that, that sort of suffering and uh, shame really shaped my view of God in a lot of ways and continued on through my teen years, um, this wrestling with how could God be good, um, a very strong sense of brokenness in me um, and just lack. I just saw all of the places where I didn't, uh, where I felt like I didn't measure up or I didn't, um, yeah, that I was not pleasing to God because in, when I came back to North America, what I saw uh, in the church as pleasing to God was um, whiteness and affluence and health and um, you know, the hashtag blessed sort of life, and we did not uh, fit into that in, in many ways. And so, um, yeah, it was a lot of struggling with that that idea of, of God being good. Um, mm. And uh, then I became a Christian. Uh, we moved to Hawaii in the middle of my junior year. I was extremely angry. Um, I have bipolar disorder, but I wasn't mm. diagnosed uh, actually until my 30s, um, although I definitely looking back had major signs of it um, in my mid to late teens um, but I was at a point where I was feeling um, suicidal and I was just at the end of myself and um, had this sort of <laughs> uh, I mean it's hard, it's hard to even talk about in some ways because I am such a like a rational person in a lot of ways and so I have a tendency to not um want like focus on like sort of the what I call like the woo-woo Christians with the like the and then you know this happened but um but the reality was that I was sort of knocked to, to the ground physically knocked to the ground and just flooded with peace um I mean a peace that I can't even really describe uh in words and um you know I, I didn't actually become a Christian then uh I, but I was curious it made me curious um what this was about and I tried to kind of explain it away uh, but I, I just my, my mind couldn't wrap around what was happening and so I started reading uh, the Bible and that went on for several months of just wrestling with scripture, wrestling with God um, yeah and um, by the end of that I started to believe and so um, from there, you know, a lot of times when we do our testimony, it'd be like, you know, and then I got, it was like horrible, and then I got saved, and then you got in, and then everything's great, right? Everything's tidy. 
except for that's not my story and um it's not a lot of people's story what what continued on was a lot of a lot more um suffering and struggling and um walking with god in very very dark places uh, seasons of really extreme depression um cycles of poverty that kept coming up in our life um illnesses that uh, have not been resolved that I might have my whole life and so what does it look like to you know, be saved have faith believe in God and then continue to walk you know much of my life in darkness and in pain and is there a place for me in the church when I um, have very little to offer in terms of what we think of as you know, service or leadership or, uh, you know, all of the things that we kind of look to that we platform certain Christians because of their their gifts. And, and so there was this point in my life where I really started to wonder, is what I bring to the church weakness? Is that my spiritual gift? And in weakness, is there a place where um, God meets me and something, you know, happens there in that mix where... Um, he's allowed to be, or he's able to be, or he's um, there's enough room for him to be incredibly powerful in a way that people that are already powerful don't get to experience. And so mm. as I started to explore that a little bit more, uh, I really came to the conclusion that we're all called to a ministry of weakness. And I think we've done such a good job of um, masking a lot of that in the North. Mm. Like it's not something that we want to we don't want to be the person that's always weak. We don't want to be the person that's sick. We don't want to be the person that needs help or is in crisis or any of those things. They're, they're very much looked down on. And um, I think that, you know, the more I started to explore this, the more I realized that God uh, desires our dependence on him and that in our weakness, he truly is strong and present in a way um, that we discount and uh, that I think is incredibly valuable to ourselves, but also to the church, you know, as a whole, to be able to be people that learn from the poor and the suffering and the hurting and the outside and the margins, you know, I don't know that we listen to that very well. So mm. that's kind of the, the, the crux of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really powerful. And the message right, of finding strength in weakness and actually finding yeah, finding hope in that place and actually that being in a sense a gift. Like that's yeah. something that that's definitely something that I resonated with because I've been through a lot of trauma and things myself right. and yeah. you know, and um as a child and then losing a parent and, you know, other things. Like yeah. so I've kind of felt like that that myself. Like yeah. what what have I got to bring? Because like you say, the church kind of you know um, even the kind of progressive church can be like, you know, it's all about, like, I had all this stuff happen and now everything's okay. Now I've gotten good. Right. And, like, God rescued me. And, like, the Hollywood story of God saving the day, you know. Right, yeah. Like, look, what, look where I was, now look where I am, you know. And it doesn't always work out like that. Um, right. Yeah. And, and they think there needs to be space, you know. Um, I had an article recently go up at, on CT Women that was talking about that experience when I was suicidal and it would be easy to say I became a Christian you know in those months and I've never struggled with that again but the reality is I've been a Christian for you know uh, over 20 years and I still struggle with suicidal ideation you know mm -hmm. pretty regularly 
Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't have faith or that I don't believe or that I don't have a, a very deep relationship with God, but there are there are realities to the brokenness in this world and the brokenness in us that um, sometimes are not healed in the ways that we think are going to be healed, you know, are not fixed or tidy or clean uh, in the ways that we that the church prescribes as being part of the redemption story. And what if the redemption story is really this walking out of obedience and faithfulness to a God who meets us in these places uh, and understands our um, our pain and our suffering because he endured it too. And a God that comes into that brokenness and um, and sits with us, you know, and weeps with us. And and that, that intimacy of relationship, I think, um, I would not have experienced had I not gone through and continued to go through so many of the things that I have. And um, I'm not saying that it's easy. You know, I talk about in the book, when I'm going through a really deep depression, I am fairly certain that God is not real and that I can't feel him and that maybe this was all just a hoax, you know. And so there is this practice of writing down the reminders of God's faithfulness and God's goodness so that when I, um, when I struggle in those ways, I have sort of this altar to remember, to look back on and to say, He's seen me through this before. He's never failed me. And um, I can, I just wait for him, you know. And it's not that he's gone, but he feels absent um, many times when I'm, when I'm really either struggling in depression. I just yeah. feel like he's not there, you know. Yeah, and I've had that experience too. I've had a kind of depressive mood, suicidal ideation myself. Yeah. I know, like, yeah, when you're in that place, it's just you feel completely alone like there's right. nothing yeah. there's nothing nothing else there it's just like yeah. you know this kind of yeah I, I remember like lying on my bed and just thinking about like you know what what if I did this you know what if I right. you know like I'm just like feeling completely yeah just an emptiness and um, yeah a mental illness is like a um, the church hasn't always dealt with mental illness very well yeah. <laughs> to yeah. put it mildly like Understatement. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. um uh-huh. and um yeah that's i think especially in conservative christianity there's, a, there's this like thing of somehow it's a weakness or mm-hmm. it's like a spiritual attack or mm-hmm. something basically there's something wrong with you right if that's yeah. you know that right your uh, faith is not strong enough you don't believe enough or you're not doing the right um, practices, right? You should be choosing joy. You should be anxious for nothing. You should, you know, be of sound mind. Like all of those things, <clears throat> people use scripture to sort of bash you over the head for the reasons that you're uh, sick and not and not seeing it as um, as an illness, you know, as a as something that is chemically wrong with my brain um, that isn't working correctly, and that no amount of you know, thinking happy thoughts is going to necessarily fix, you know. So I think we also, without having, you know, specificity of language, I think sometimes, um, you know, people will say, oh, I'm sad. I'm like, oh, I'm depressed or I'm sad. And I'm like, sadness and depression, you know, clinical depression are not the same thing. Hmm. Um, Worry, being worried about something and having, you know, generalized anxiety and panic disorder are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think because there's sometimes this confusion about that, what, you know, like, well, yeah, we shouldn't worry about anything because whatever, but having anxiety is, is 
a completely different um, experience that is outside of the realm of rational thought. Yeah. And, um, and is this, you know, this body's reaction, this fight or flight to a stimulus that's not there, you know? And so everybody has worry. Um, but I think because we don't always understand the nature and severity of mental illness, there is sometimes this very dismiss, this, you know, dismissive attitude where, uh, People do think, well, you just need to, you know, trust God, mm. and you just need to, you know, choose joy, and you're just not grateful enough. Like, you shouldn't be depressed. Look at how good your life is, you know? And there have been times when I look around my life, and I go, everything's really bad, and I, I understand why I'm depressed. And then there's times I look around my life, and everything is, is great. I mean, everything is fine, and I'm in a severe depression, and I almost feel guilty. Like, I should be... Um, mm. more grateful because other people I shouldn't feel depressed because other people have it worse you know um, but it isn't it isn't just a, a sadness it isn't just an ungratefulness it is a um, chemical you know thing happening in my brain and my body that um, no amount of you know pulling myself up by the bootstrap is going to fix so mm. yeah I think it's important that we um begin to have a, a deeper understanding of what that is because I, I think a lot of people I mean, we don't have a great history in the church of dealing with mental illness but even still even as far as we've come with some things there's still uh, lots of areas in the church where people are uh, just have no understanding of what mental illness is really like mm, and absolutely. the compassion and the empathy is not present um, for people who who struggle in this way yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I agree absolutely. Um, and um, I mean, how much did getting a diagnosis for your for bipolar um, help you? Um, well, originally I was in denial that that was what I had, and I think some of it was the the stigmatized uh, sort of media view that I had of bipolar disorder. I remember watching like a Law & Order SVU episode years ago um, mm. and the woman on it was had bipolar disorder and she was, you know, like violent and kind of scared and I thought, I'm not that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that extreme, that's not how I am, um, they must have it wrong. And for a long time I just talked about the depressive uh, side of, of things because I would get severely depressed. Um, but I thought the hypomanic side was just who I was when I wasn't depressed. I didn't mm realized that it was there were cycles that were abnormal and behaviors that were abnormal i just kind of thought this is me when i'm functioning and doing well because i had this extremely high capacity and i could just i just thought i was you know sort of an achiever like i can do all this stuff you know when i'm um, hypomanic and i would learn new hobbies and i would decide to learn latin and i would pull out all my furniture to redecorate my whole house and you know, at two in the morning, I would go to Walmart and buy two hundred dollars worth of cleaning supplies so that I could, you know, clean the whole house from top to bottom. Like, I just thought this is me being really motivated. Uh, I didn't necessarily realize these are all symptoms of uh, the sort of um, out of control, grandiose, uh, hypomanic phase. And so, when they finally diagnosed me, and I started to really look at the patterns in my life, um, I started to accept. Uh, you know, as I learn more about it, that this is this is why this all makes sense now. Um, these cycles up and down and up and down. Um, I used to have longer cycles. I'm I'm a pretty rapid cycler now, so um, it's been harder to find medication that 
it's just been really hard. I've had to change men so much. It's been, you know, it's just been a very difficult journey. Um, and so even after I was diagnosed for a long time, I didn't use the word bipolar. I didn't, I still, I wrote online about depression, but I didn't use the word bipolar disorder because yeah. it's just so um, big, massive, and, and confusing. And I had had a conversation with a friend. Uh, I didn't know anybody in real life who had bipolar disorder, any one person. And um, she had a teenage son who had bipolar disorder and was talking about how, you know, they don't talk about it with anybody. It's like a family secret because... They don't want him to be ostracized in youth group or in school or like they don't want him to have to carry that stigma or have other parents not want their kids to play with him or that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I just remember thinking like how much that stinks. Like I totally, absolutely respect their privacy and understand as a parent why you would do that. But I just thought it stinks that that's necessary to mm. protect her kid in that way from, you know, people. I mean, if he had any other sort of you know, struggles or disease, uh, it wouldn't be the stigmatized, like, hidden thing, you know, if he had mm. cancer or if he had diabetes, like, you would just say, oh, yeah, my kid has this and this is something we're going through and people would support you. Um, but to say my kid has, uh, you know, bipolar disorder or my kid is, um, has schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, like, people are, like, weirded out. They don't want their kids around that, you know. So mm. I remember thinking, I, as an adult woman, um, have the ability to talk about this in a way that this teenage child does doesn't. Um, and I thought I feel like uh, I felt like for me I had a freedom to do that, and I was choosing not to. Um, and I felt like I would like the uh, perception of what it's like to deal with bipolar disorder and these other things to change. So that, you know, maybe in 10 years, this, you know, the next kid that's a teenager won't have to, you know, hide it, mm. <laughs> you know, not to be, worry about being judged or uh, you know, excluded. Yeah. And so uh, I started talking about it openly and, and, um, and what I realized is that there are so, so many people struggling with mental illness in all different capacities that don't talk about it publicly and some because they can't they're you know their jobs are with the school system or their jobs are with you know in church ministry or and they know that 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 will affect uh, the chances for advancement it will it will affect their authority people will question you know is, is this person just being you know is this her disease or is this a good option like i think a lot of those things are realities there are drawbacks to how open we are about illness and weakness um because we're a society that doesn't value those things in any way. Uh, in our church, we definitely don't value poverty and weakness. We want the strong person who's got the end, you know, the other end of the testimony. We want the people that come up and say, I used to struggle with, you know, mental illness, but now, you know, I'm healed. Or I used to struggle with being poor, but now, you know, God provided and I'm, you know, affluent and doing well, or I used to, you know, we want that happy ending story. We want that redemption story that looks like before and after instead of like before and then just sort of the middle space for, you know, 20 years. Um, and mm. so uh, I do think that there are drawbacks to how open we are. At the same time, I think that it's vitally important that people understand that it's not some, um, you know, distant person that struggles with this. It could be the person 
It could be your neighbor. It could be your, you know, the woman in the checkout line. It could be the person that comes. I mean, you don't know how people are, are struggling and suffering, and um, you don't know what their story is. And I think there's a, a sort of a humanizing effect to, to storytelling. I believe really strongly in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that there's a connective sort of uh, almost connective tissue that happens. Like we, we know we're part of this body, but it it binds us to each other when we're able to empathize and enter into somebody else's story. And um, and so that was really my hope in talking about it so publicly mm. was that people would have a better understanding of what it's like. You know, my experience with bipolar disorder isn't everybody's experience with bipolar disorder. Mm. People experience it. You know, we experience all of those things in different ways. So there's not one, if this is my experience and this is what everybody feels, but I think there is um, a commonality to the emotion of dealing with it that a lot of people can relate to. And and at least opens the door to conversation of of saying, how do we we care for and walk alongside and love, you know, people that are struggling in whatever way they're struggling, you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's really great how you just talk about these things so openly in the book as well and um, I mean the whole book is I mean the title of the book is so apt you know it's it's, yeah. it's kind of celebrating the fact that we're all imperfect and that you know we all have our imperfections and right. you know and that, that those are those can be divine things those can be right. that's where we meet the divine right and that's yeah that's one of the reasons I love this book because I yeah just um it um, kind of meets. I think it will meet people where they're at and kind of remind them that they're loved as they are. I think it's a, yeah. there's a lot of grace in the book. Yeah. Uh, and you know you talk about grace a lot in the book as well. And it's a, so I've written a book on grace. It's um, it's a really important subject. And, yeah. Um. So yeah. Um. One of the other big things I noticed in the book, in more than in several places. Um, is uh, something else I've got experience of actually, which is like grief, mm-hmm. um, because you talk about um, losing a child, you talk about um, losing parents, mm-hmm. um, your dad. Um, at the end of the book, it talks about uh, your dad's passing, and yeah. Um, so, what kind of? I don't know what the question would be <laughs> about grief, but. Um, how did grief change you? How did it impact you? And what, what kind of what are your thoughts on grief? Yeah, uh, I think um, I you know I I remember being in uh, I think it was high school psychology or something. It was like the stages of grief, and it just seemed like this very linear process. You know, you um, it was like the denial and anger and bargaining. You know, all of those, and you kind of mm. move down the timeline, and then at the end you've come out the other side of grief. And so this was my understanding of grief when I was a high school student uh, in the psychology class. It was just this uh, this process that you went through. Mm. And at the end, it was sort of done. And you, you, you know, time heals all things, that kind of idea. You, know, you just have to move through the stages. And then when I experienced grief, um, it was... It was not that way, yeah, and I think um, you know part of the thing is I don't I don't think the process is linear. I think the process is very you know circular, mm. and it comes up at all. It's very uh, disruptive to life. You think you're doing fine, 
um, and you're, you know, you're coping and, and all of a sudden you're crying in a, you know, grocery store, <laughs> like, you know, you're, it, something will spark a memory or you're dealing with the stuff and all the, the questions that come when you lose somebody. Um, you know, I think death was never, uh, it was never supposed to be the, I mean, I think there's something in us intrinsically that knows like, this is very wrong, right? Like, mm. I think our, our, um, in our spirit, we know, like, this is not how it's supposed to be. And, um, and so I think there's this, uh, this sort of, uh, I don't know if it's like this sort of cognitive tearing in our, in our brain and in our spirit, but there's this, uh, this sort of rage against this wrongness of this person leaving us in this way. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in the midst of that reconciling, um, that things are not always going to be this way and that we're promised that um, we've sort of, you know, Jesus has triumphed over death. And so as a Christian, my experience with grace is a little bit different than um, than probably it would be if I didn't have faith. Um, mm-hmm. But the experience of it is still um, just incredibly, it's incredibly disruptive to life and um, it's, it's not a linear process. I think it, it you know, it... Um, and there is no time limit on it. I think this is something we get wrong in church a lot. Like there's a mm. there's a mourning period, and then you're supposed to be done. But you know, yeah. um, if you're still grieving years and years later, um, it's there is this sort of like, well, you should be over it by now. Like you should have healed by now, and you know, you need to move on with your life. And and um, and I think that I just think we're not great at it. I think we're not great at suffering. We're not great at women. We're not great at grief. So I think for me, like my first experience, uh, you know, I talk about in the book about losing um, a child. I miscarried at 16 weeks and it was this very long process of, uh, I've been in and out of the hospital afterwards, um, had to have two different surgeries, hemorrhaged on the table the first time. Like it was just this prolonged, um, this prolonged grief because it wasn't just done and I was dealing with all of the emotions. And I don't think at that time I even knew I had permission to grieve in the way that I did. I thought that, uh, I think where the place where my faith was at that time, I, I really sort of thought you're supposed to just trust God and everything happens for a reason. And I don't know his reasons, but I should just, you know, I, I didn't realize how broken and hurt and angry I could be and how honest I could be with God in the midst of that. And so I didn't go to God when I grieved. Um, I just sort of pushed it all down in the, you know, under the covering of being a good Christian um, and having faith. And, and, and if I trusted God, then I would just, you know, sort of smile and nod and move on. And I really it just, you know, I talk in the book about grief pushed down comes out sideways. And boy, did it ever. Um, went through a lot of periods of, of trying to, you know, just stuff it. And it just, it just came out in other ways. Um, and... So that was my first experience, was just just not knowing how to navigate it, not having a guideline for what that would look like, um, not really believing that God um, could handle all of my big emotions and my questions. I had so many questions, and I wouldn't let myself really uh, engage them because I thought, what what if I start asking questions and... I have so much doubt that I like lose my faith. And, and I remember what it was like before I believed and before I was a Christian. And I think I thought, you know, in some ways, like, I don't know if I can trust God to be big enough to answer these questions. 
And I think at that time I didn't realize that sometimes why we ask the questions is not necessarily for the answer to them, but it's for the, the presence of God in the midst of that, understanding who God is in the middle of our suffering and how honest we can be with him. And, um, and so then, you know, years later, when my um, father died, mm. I had a different understanding of grace and the gospel and God's presence in my life. This was after a lot uh, more brokenness and um, and dependence on him and realizing I can be heck honest with God in terms of like, you know, my, sometimes my prayers are, are just, um, you know, expletives. <laughs> like, I, I think there are times that, you know, I can talk to God in a way that is extremely bare and honest. And I, it was a different experience grieving my father, you know, still incredibly hard. Um, you know, and I'm not going to lie and say, you know, it was easy in any way, but the process of it was different because I felt free to ask all the questions and to be angry and to not let it, you know, have to resolve, um, in the timeline that I thought was appropriate. I could, you know, um, even still, you know, the first day I got my um, book, um, I got my actual hard copy of my book it was the first time I'd ever held it in my hands mm. and it was super exciting you know because mm. I wrote a book like that's I mean that yeah. is crazy yeah. um, so I'm standing there it's this totally surreal experience I'm holding my book and I am both excited and proud and I'm also like deeply deeply sad that my dad is not alive to see it that he's not here mm. um, to be in this celebration with me and so during times of celebration, I often feel this deep sorrow underneath where I think I'm celebrating this beautiful thing in my life and there's this person missing from it. Um, and that's, that's very hard still, I mean, you know, years later. And so there are these times when those things come up and I just, at this point, you know, I just let myself feel them. I let myself feel them both and I realize that I can feel you know, joy and sorrow at the same time. I used to think they were opposed. You could only have one or the other. Mm. And I'm realizing you can have them both, yeah. Um, yeah. you know? And so I do, I celebrate and I also um, let myself feel sad that it doesn't feel complete this side of eternity, right? It doesn't, yeah. doesn't feel complete yet. Yeah, and I, yeah, I mean, so much of what you talked about, not just then and also in the book, it resonated with my own. Experience, you know, my mum passed away 19 years ago. Yeah, you know, and it's still, you know, you st- it's like you say, grief is a, is a circle. It's right. It's like a, it's, it just goes on, you know, and it, yeah. it, it it does it does change over time. Right. Um, as you grow and you know that kind of thing, yeah. and it's different, but um, it still mm. still yeah. kind of hits you like sometimes when. Yeah, you know, special moments yeah. of your life. You know when, right. like, like you, like when I had my when I when my first book came out a couple of years ago, that, that, that was I had that experience of like you know yeah. that she was she wasn't here to to read it. You know and um yeah and it's but like you say that, that, and I think only people who've 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 been had this experience will understand fully this is fully. But like there's that, that like you talk about the laughing and the as well as the, the kind of joy and the, and the tears at the same time, you know, like the, yeah. um, yeah, um, and yeah, I actually, I love, um, the film Shadowlands, um, 
which talked about grief a lot. And one of the quotes in that movie, which always gets me, is um, uh, the pain now is part of the happiness then. Yeah. You know, there's like, yeah. so there's always that kind of duality going on with, with right. grief, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that, um, <clears throat> I think that we sometimes don't allow for the nuance of human emotion and experience. We sort of want to categorize it as one or the other. And, and most of the time it's many things, you know, um, I mean, even just with, with all of, you know, I can have deep, deep anxiety and also faith in God, you know, I can have, I mean, we can experience multiple things and uh, multiple feelings. And I sometimes think we limit ourselves we try to rationalize that it could only be this one thing or this other thing and, mm, um, and we right. don't let ourselves be fully I mean almost fully human in the fact that that there are so many overlapping uh, emotions and feelings and processes to not just grief but to suffering in general to, to joy to celebration like there are all kinds of layers to it we're very complex and um I think sometimes we reduce ourselves, but I also think sometimes we, do, we reduce God to sort of the singular emotion or the singular, uh, you know, God who doesn't understand, like, the fullness of what we're feeling. Um, but then, when, you know, when I look at Scripture, I go, that's really just not the case. You know, you look at this, you look at Jesus who, you know, felt all the things, and it's so comforting to know that, that we can too, that there's, you know, there's nothing that we can express to him that he'll be surprised by. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think about the. I've been thinking a lot about the humanity of Jesus a lot, and Jesus is, you know, an outcast as a child, and even his own family maybe, and not being able to do the things his peers did, like get married and things, and mm-hmm. uh, and then losing a parent, and you know, having all of that happen to him, and all that, yeah. all the messages that would have sent him and stuff, and it that actually helped me connect with Jesus more than anything else has ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like his humanity um, yeah. and that he actually there is actually solidarity there you know right um, yeah for sure um, so okay so he talked about the book and um, like obviously I mean in my experience writing can be quite a therapeutic kind of process so how what was the kind of experience of writing this book like i mean what does it have what did it do to you kind of oh man it was rough you know i um i knew that i wanted to write this book i knew that it was it was sort of that you know burning a hole in my gut kind of feeling um i've never been one i'm an enneagram four Oh, me too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, so you get me. So I, I didn't have like a, I have a five wing, I have almost no three wings, so mm. I am not very success driven um, and, or, you know, any of that. And so my thing was I didn't want to write a book until I knew that it was like going to be the book, right? I didn't want to just write something to be published. And um, and I thought, I really in my head thought I'd probably publish a book in my 50s and 40 right now. Uh, like mm-hmm. later, you know, and um, and so I wasn't in any huge rush, but this stuff started happening, and I remember thinking, you know, this is not a blog post, like this feels like a longer work, and as I started to work through it, I realized, oh yeah, this is this is forming into this thing. So all of that said, I thought, okay, I'm going to write this book, and, you know, then I got the book deal, and all of this imposter syndrome came in, and I thought, oh my gosh, they gave me a book deal, 
and I have to write a book and I have no idea what I'm doing. And um, I think the first few months of my, you know, when I was supposed to be writing my book, I had just like all of the critics in my head. I felt like uh, I had my editors and my marketing team and all, you know, all these people that I just felt like, um, I, you know, I don't know how to tell the story for everybody. I and mean, that was really kind of what, you know, how do I do this for everybody? And it took a few months before I remembered or was reminded that I'm not really writing. I mean, in the beginning, in the intro, I say this book is not for everyone. And I think the message is for everyone, like 100%. But when I wrote the book, I was very, very specifically having one reader in mind. And, of course, you hope that other people, you know, will pick it up and, and like it. But I, I really wrote this first, this book for those people that needed that comfort and needed to know that uh, how encompassing grace was and how beloved they are and how much Jesus um, loves them and uh, and that their weakness doesn't disqualify them, that in fact it's, it can be a beautiful thing um, in the kingdom of God, which is upside down and backwards and absurd. And so I... Um, as I started to write it, I thought, okay, you know, the words are coming. I actually wrote it in a fairly small amount of time when it actually came down to it. I mean, it, I was writing it for a long, long periods and, and the editing and all this stuff. But the words, when I actually sat down and wrote, a lot of it came very, very fast. I tend to be a pretty fast writer. Um, but the emotional sort of toll of writing this kind of book with, you know, revisiting a lot of stories of my past, um, was emotionally very, very draining. And during the writing, this I mean, the last, you know, the year that I was writing this book, I had, um, I mean, an absurd amount of health crisis things. I had two severe depressions. I had one very severe hypomanic. I had to change my meds twice. I had a really severe asthma. Uh, had to go to the ER. Uh, I don't even remember how many times I've been on courses of, um, steroids for my lungs and the steroids make my bipolar you know worse uh, exacerbate all of that so uh, I gained I think like maybe 70 pounds um, from all the steroids and the cycles and being in bed and not being able to do my normal thing so uh, physically and um, and mentally and emotionally it was very very rough I, I in my head I thought I'm being obedient to God. I'm writing this book that I feel like he's calling me to write, you know, in whatever way that means. Um, or these the stories that, that I'm, you know, writing, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And in my head I had this sort of, I mean, I think this is, this is how deeply ingrained sort of the prosperity gospel is into just the fabric of a North American faith. Um, but I felt like, okay, I'm being faithful, I'm doing this thing, so God is going to sort of surround me with this bubble wrap and everything's going to be smooth while I write this book for him. I mean, mm. you know, like, mm. I, if I do this, then he'll do this, you know, and um, I really thought that it was going to be sort of smooth, like, everything would kind of ease up. Um, we're not going to not gonna have so many health things or mental health things or financial, probably my husband um, works construction, he's a painter, so, you know, we're not wealthy by any any stretch of the imagination and so you know we struggle financially especially with um this many medical bills uh, mm. thousands and thousands of dollars in debt from medical bills which makes every paycheck you know a paycheck to paycheck and extremely tight and so you know there was that th there was that weighing like i'm really sick i need to go to the doctor 
you know, how bad does it have to be before I go in, knowing it's going to be hundreds of dollars and I might not be able to afford my meds. And just so that stress of doing that alongside writing a book was, um, it was just, yeah, it definitely took its toll. Um, and so, I, you know, I say I wrote this book from a place of, of uh, weakness and dependency. And I mean, I remember sitting down and being like, God, you, you have to like help me because I don't have anything. I'm exhausted. I don't have the words. I can't even breathe. There was, you know, I have an oximeter, you know, for my, to make sure that my um, oxygen saturation is high enough, you know, and mm-hmm. um, going to the doctor with my asthma, they're like, we really should hospitalize you. And I was like, I can't afford it. Like, if I'm not going to die, you know, I can't afford to be in the hospital. I don't have insurance. And, um, and so... I remember them saying, like, well, if your stats fall below this, you need to come in. And so I'd be checking on, like, that borderline area where, you know, if you're not getting enough oxygen to your body, <laughs> you're pretty tired and don't feel right. And um, so everything was exhausted. Everything was weak. Everything was sort of at the end of myself. And I wrote my book from that place. And I don't know that I would have written the book that I wrote had it not been from that place. I don't know it would have came out the same um, because I'm not writing it from the beyond. I'm not writing it necessarily from the other side. You know, I say in the book that, you know, consider me more of a companion than a guide. I'm not necessarily further ahead, you know. I am still in the middle of these these cycles. Uh, I will probably struggle with bipolar disorder for the rest of my life in whatever way, you know. Mm. Um, Also have anxiety and other, you know, things that complicate it Uh, but I also have chronic illness things that you know I'm balancing so living my life in this body living my life in uh in the reality that I live my life there are certain things that are probably never going to be you know on the other side of uh until kingdom come you know like Mm. and so what does it look like to to do that I, I really think that that writing this book in that space made it the book that um that it was meant to be, because uh, I didn't want to write a, a tidy. You now, even in the, at the end, I was wondering, like, is this going to be too open-ended for people, where they feel I didn't want to. I didn't want to leave people without a sense of hope, because despite everything, I feel a deep gratitude and hope. Um, you know, most of the time, and mm-hmm. um, I feel like I'm a very hopeful person, considering all things. And I, I didn't want to leave my reader feeling hopeless or like, you know, but I also didn't want to give a false sense of what hope has to look like where mm-hmm. everything is fixed. I want I wanted to make sure my reader knew he's going to have hope and beauty and meaning right here in the middle of all of that mess because God's good. And, and I can honestly say, you know, God has just been incredibly merciful and tender towards me, you know, even just in the releasing of the book, I, I knew my core readers would lo- would love it and would read it. You know, I've had readers that have followed me for years and years, and I knew I have a very small platform. Um, I knew those those you know core people would support me and love me. But I've been you know sort of astounded by the wider rings that you know the wider um, spaces people who are picking it up that I didn't expect. Um, and that's just God's, you know, God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And um, there were people asking me, like, if I'm really stressed about book launch. And I was like, you know, I'm really not. I'm exhausted physically. Like, I'm very, very tired. A lot of work. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but mentally and emotionally and spiritually, I feel at peace. 
feel like that's really great. You know, God is God's got this, and whatever happens, you know, happens. And um, I want to be a good steward, and I want to be faithful, you know, to the marketing part because I know that's hard for me, and um, and so I'm trying trying to do that. But um, but the outcome is not my it's not it's not mine to manufacture or deal with. Um, the outcome and the you know what happens to it that's that's not in my hands so yeah it's been actually a really good experience in, in that in that way because I think there was so much dependence during the book writing that now that it's released I can just sort of breathe and know uh, nothing's really changed you know like I'm still dependent on God and he still will do with the words what he wants to do with it and they'll get into the hands of the people that need it and I don't have to stress about it so. Mm. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so just to close, like we've talked about so much today. It's been amazing. Um, what was what would like if you were able to leave readers with one message at the end of the book? What would what would that be? Um, one message, you know, I think that um, you know, Brennan Manning. It has a big influence on my life. I think the biggest message would be that you're beloved and that all is grace. Um, mm. and those are the two things that I really think carry us, you know? Our mm. identity is beloved no matter what, whether you're laying in bed and can't get out of bed for weeks because you're depressed, you're beloved, and we don't have to perform. And God sees us and loves us right where we're at. And always grace, like when I really look at my life and I look at all of the things, it would be easy to say there's just too much suffering and too much pain and too much brokenness. But I really believe always grace. And if we're looking for it, we'll find it. Uh, I see it everywhere. God's grace and tenderness and mercy to me. And that gives me great hope that that will continue. You know, I'm I'm looking for it. I'm, um, you know, a big advocate of you're giving attention to the things that are um, that are beautiful and that bring wonder and that point to the goodness of God in our lives. And they don't have to be they don't have to be huge, you know, mm. miracle things. They can be small things. They can be a child's laughter or you know a flower blooming at the right time. Um, they all point to the goodness of God. Every good thing, you know. So that would be my what I hope readers would would really feel at the end of it. That's fantastic. And it's a great book, um, Glorious Weakness. It's available. Is it out now? I think it, mm-hmm. it, yeah, yep. it's out now. So go, go to Amazon, check it out. It's really, really great. Um, highly recommended. So um, thank you so much. Um, oh, thanks so much, Ryan. This was a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening, everyone, and uh, take care.